Well, it's hard to imagine what they must have felt like. My guess is that they had grown pretty weary, tired of of their lives, of the way that they had been forced to live. And maybe they had just reached a breaking point. Certainly they were worn down, just emotionally spent by years of rejection, of disappointment, of having to live in pain, of having insensitive people turn and walk the other way whenever they encountered them. I mean, that got old real fast. But they had run out of options. At least they had found each other. And do you know, as they say, misery loves company. I mean, it was tough enough to live with an illness like this, especially the, the kind that they shared together. But it was even worse for them. They not only had to live with this physically, but, but their law pronounced them unclean. So it affected every aspect of their lives. Now, on the one hand, being unclean was not a punishment from God. It provided a process of restoration. But because God is holy, it kept them from going into the temple courts to worship. It meant that they couldn't hear the songs of the Levitical choirs or offer their praise at the altar. They couldn't share in the meal of the peace offerings or listen to the Torah in the temple courts as the scrolls were unrolled and read. On the other hand, though, others certainly didn't see this illness in a very compassionate and understanding way. I mean, they were glad it wasn't them. And they made their lives even worse through their insults and emotional abuse. The unclean were not welcomed in public. The law said that they needed to stay at a distance of about 50 yards. They even had to cry out unclean so people would be warned of their presence. Even to the ones they needed the most. Family and friends and people in their village. So they pretty much lived in isolation. They were on their own. No doubt, some had looked upon them with disgust. They weren't about to go near them for any reason. Normally, someone who was unclean could be eventually restored. But in their case, this illness had lingered. For some reason, it just wasn't going away. They must have felt worthless. They were made to feel ashamed, labeled with just ugly names all over something that wasn't their fault. And I can imagine over the years that they had become bitter, emotionally just raw. They probably thought that God had rejected them. More than likely, they had overheard the harsh and cruel teaching of the Pharisees that an illness like this, of this duration, meant that they had been cursed of God. They must have prayed for healing. But as the months and the years went by, and pleading and and just wrestling with God with no direct answers, I'm sure that their prayers were less frequent, less passionate, less hopeful. Perhaps they grew silent altogether. Well, our lives intersect with theirs in the middle of Luke's gospel. The Bible chooses not to tell us their names. 
but their story is recorded here. So that we're still talking about them 2,000 years later. Join with me in turning to Luke's gospel as I read this story. It's on page 802 in the Bible in the seat back in front of you. It's found in Luke chapter 17, beginning at verse 11. As Jesus continued on toward Jerusalem, he reached the border between Galilee and Samaria. And as he entered a village there, ten lepers stood at a distance crying out, Jesus, Master, have, have mercy on us. And he looked at them and he said, Go and show yourself to the priests. And as they went, their leprosy disappeared. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, Praise God, I'm healed. He fell face down on the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. This man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, Didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Does only this foreigner return to give glory to God? Jesus said to the man, Stand up and go. Your faith has made you well. So here they are, Luke says, making quite a commotion as Jesus enters this village. No doubt word had spread about this rabbi, this teacher who was performing miracles. I mean, that kind of news travels really fast, especially when you have few options, especially when you've kind of lost all hope. So they cry out to him in in unison, and these ten all together could get somebody's attention even at 50 yards away. Master, have mercy on us. Now, in the world of Jesus, there were two kinds of teachers. There were what the Bible calls uh, teachers of the law, teachers of Torah. We often think of Torah as strictly legal law, but it was so much more than that. In reality, the law provided direction from God. Those who were faithful actually embraced the law, not as some kind of harsh measuring stick. The law guided them with God's protection and with God's provision. And it not only protected God's people from just ruining their lives, provided them with, with a relationship, with a way to come into God's presence, and to, joy, to enjoy intimacy with Him. The law showed how to live a life of obedience and how to receive God's blessing. But in addition to teachers of the law, there, there were also rabbis, masters, Rabbis were far more advanced in their knowledge and, and in their teaching skills. They were masters of the Old Testament scriptures and of the Jewish traditions. And they knew the scriptures by memory. At the age of 30, they had memorized the entire Old Testament. If you gave them a phrase out of any passage, they could tell you what came before and, and what came after. They were also master teachers. Absolutely just amazing storytellers. I mean, they could teach in such a way that the stories were just brought to life. So you can see in this passage in verse 13 that as they cry out to Jesus, they call him Master. Now this particular word, this title, is only used of Jesus here in Luke's Gospel. It's a word that's exclusively used by his disciples, except here by these ten. 
It's a title that focuses on authority, exclusive authority. Luke wants us to understand that here. So wherever these ten picked this up, they somehow knew that Jesus had authority that no one else had. And they were not about to let him get away. I'm sure they must have overheard conversations out in the back alleys that this Jesus of Nazareth, well, he just might be the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one of God. I'm sure that they were taught from the prophets that Messiah would bring physical healing. And that perked them up. But he also was going to bring forgiveness. He would take the uncleanness that was in their hearts and forever cleanse it and make it new. This is the one who Luke tells us in this passage. Here's the desperate cries of these ten lepers, these marginalized outcasts. And he turns and and he looks at them. And in the most significant moment in their lives, God in flesh sees them. Now don't read by this here. It seems like just an insignificant phrase in the text. But whenever the Bible talks about God looking at anybody, it's not just a mere casual glance. It's packed with full of intention and and a purpose. And it becomes absolutely significant when you're dealing with God. Because God is never more clearly revealed than through the look, through the gaze of Jesus Christ. I want you to understand something very important here tonight. That God has stopped in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and he has looked at you. Every single one of you here tonight. And in that look, he wants you to see him for who he is, in all that he is. He wants you to see his love and his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. I mean, just think about how the lives of these ten were just suddenly and and radically changed. I mean, immediately Jesus takes them out of their isolation. He takes them from being outcasts, from being despised and He just does the miraculous in their lives. Restores their dignity and their their value and their worth. And he tells them to go and and to show yourself to the priests. And we read in this passage that as they went, even before they get to the priest, that their leprosy disappeared. Now going to the priest was a vital step. I mean, they had to be examined and pronounced clean. So that no one would just freak out when they saw them. But Luke makes it clear that they were healed on the way there. So that there would be no mistake who healed them. Their isolation, gone. That 50-yard barrier, removed. Their prohibition from worship, lifted. Restrictions to touch and to be embraced by family. Restored. All in an instant. They could get back to their lives. But then comes a a little twist to the story. In fact, it's actually a big one. Look at verse 15. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, came back to Jesus shouting, Praise God, I'm healed. 
fell face down on the ground at Jesus' feet, thanking him for what he had done. And this man was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, well, didn't I heal ten men? Where are the other nine? Did only one return? Jesus asked three questions here. Questions that are very penetrating and sobering. And I want to be careful about reading a certain kind of emotion into the text because we're not told, but I think that these three questions just kind of knocks the wind out of you. I mean, my sense is that Jesus does not ask these in righteous judgment. I think he asks these questions out of a broken heart. I mean, they took something they didn't deserve from a God who had done something extraordinary in their lives. Didn't, didn't I heal ten? Where are the other nine? Did only one come back? Have you ever done something for someone and gone out of your way, kind of went above and beyond, and maybe even at great expense of your time and your resources, only to see a lack of gratitude, only to see someone just kind of Take and run. How did that make you feel? Used? Certainly not appreciated. See, the issue, too, is, is here is not giving in order to get something. It's about longing for an appropriate response. Somehow it just completes the gift. So what about these nine? I mean, what was up with them anyway? I mean, why didn't they come back? I mean, what Jesus did just dramatically changed their lives. I mean, I wonder what they were thinking. I wonder if asked what, what they might have said. I mean, one of them might have said, well, I, I did what he told me to do. I went to the priest. He didn't say anything about coming back. Maybe another one said, well, I was so excited about just getting home to my family. I just blanked. I I totally forgot. Another one said maybe, uh, hey, he, he does that on a regular basis. I'm not the only one he healed. Figured there was no expectations. There were no catches. Maybe another one, well, I really didn't ask for this in the first place. I mean, the others, they were all yelling out. Now my life is screwed up. I kind of liked the pity. I wanted to be separated from my family. I don't want to go back to the synagogue. Now I have to go and find a job. Or maybe, you know, I, I meant to go back. I, I, I really did. I, I became so distracted, though. I mean, the press showed up taking pictures, and they scheduled an interview, and my calendar just was packed. Just didn't have time. Maybe another one. I didn't want to go back because he would probably ask me to do other stuff. I heard he asked one guy to give up everything he had. I mean, I just got all my stuff back. I'm not ready for that. Someone once said that once a man gets what he wants, he never comes back. And I wonder if, if these nine even noticed that this one who Luke identifies as a Samaritan, 
I wonder if they even noticed that, that he turned and, and went back. I mean, Luke is making a point here. The nine were Jews. I mean, they of all people should have known better. I mean, praise and thanksgiving to God was central to their worship. In fact, it, it acted as a kind of a barometer to their faith. It was an indication of their relationship with God, of their closeness to him, of, of how much they desired to be with him. The fact that these nine walked away is just absolutely startling. It's telling on their hearts. It's telling on the reality of what was going on down deep inside of them. You know, a person praises, expresses gratitude over what they enjoy. You talk about it, you tweet it, you post it, you pin it. But it gets tougher, doesn't it, to give appropriate gratitude when we're just so immersed in a culture that is so focused upon ourselves. I mean, we live in an age of the selfie. You know, taking pictures of yourself. I mean, do we really need to see a different picture of someone's face twice a day on Facebook? Or if you really need just to be out there, you can post six-second looping videos of yourself. I mean, do you know that selfie was the word of the year in 2013? It was picked over others because it is said to embody the the zeitgeist of the year. In other words, it's it's a word that most defines who we are, what we're becoming, what influences us. So it's pretty telling, isn't it? about how, how far we've come in the year 2013. After all, it's, it's about me. There's not much room for gratitude there. Not much space for selflessly posts there. These nine, I, I wonder what their Facebook posts were like. They were probably filled with before and after selfies. But probably not much mention of who made all the difference. Do you know that in biblical Hebrew that there's no word for thank you? Did you know that? I know you see the word thanks all over the Old Testament, but that's really not a very accurate translation in English of the words that are used. Because when you say thank you in English, who is the subject? I. Me, I thank you. But with the words that are used in the Bible, the words that are used to express thanks, God is the subject, and he is the object. You see, biblical praise and gratitude keeps us out of it, and it makes it all about God. There's no selfies taken in his presence. The nine who didn't return, they, they walked away from, from the only one who really mattered. That's exactly what Luke wants us to understand here. Just this month, the evangelist Billy Graham celebrated his 95th birthday. And this is a man who is a spiritual advisor to presidents and had audience with political and spiritual leaders the world over. He preached to millions of people in over 400 arenas all around the world in a ministry career that has lasted over 60 years. 
And at his birthday celebration through video, he gave what was to be his very last address to this nation. And in that message, he said, Our country is in great need of a spiritual awakening. There have been times that I've wept as I've gone from city to city. And I've seen how far people have wandered away from God. As Billy Graham's ministry comes to a conclusion after six decades of proclaiming the gospel, in the twilight of his life, his heart remains just in anguish over so many who have wandered away from God, having no desire to have him as part of their lives. I wonder how many times Jesus wept as he went from city to city, from village to village, seeing how far people had wandered away from him, walking away from the very source of eternal life. This one who returned, this Samaritan, this one who was considered a heretic and an enemy of God by the Jews, something was different about him. Someone had taken hold of his life, his heart. And he became all about honoring and and praising God. He, He wanted to make sure that Jesus knew how grateful he was. Going back to Jesus for him was was an opportunity. It wasn't an obligation. In fact, I think he was just compelled to go back. It's a reaction to his glory. He couldn't imagine being anywhere else in that moment except being in the presence of Jesus. And I can just picture Jesus just sitting down on the ground with him and just taking time with him and telling him how much he was loved and valued and allowing this man to experience for the very first time in his life what a a real relationship with God was all about. See, the thing about gratitude, about cultivating a thankful heart, is that you cannot force yourself to be grateful. My guess is that the nine had developed a, a sense of entitlement over the years. They, you know, they had been ripped off in life. They were victims. They deserved to be healed, after all. Entitlement and discontentment and complaint, dissatisfaction, bitterness, all that stuff keeps us trapped in self-centeredness takes away any sense of awe and wonder and and gratitude over who God is and and what he's done in our lives. And it's so easy just to find yourself walking down that path, isn't it? So how do we protect ourselves from developing a heart like that? How do we avoid being like the other nine? How do we live a life of gratitude to God? I mean, we could do an entire series on this topic, but I just want you to walk away from this weekend with, with just a, a few ways to cultivate a thankful heart in your life. The first one is this. To live your life as a thank you note to God. Just live your life as a, as a thank you note to God. What does your life really say? Have you ever thought about that? I mean, what do others see in you when they encounter you? Does your life say thank you to God? 
And the kind of thank you that takes the word I out of the subject. Are you growing into a person who knows how to say thank you to God? Where you find yourself increasingly giving glory and praise to God in, in spite of any circumstances? Back in the Old Testament, in the book of Leviticus, God provided worshipers with a thank offering. It was a way for them to come and express gratitude to him. It was a free will offering, meaning that they could bring it whenever they wanted and as, as many times as they wanted. And it was the only offering where a portion of the meat was given back to the worshiper. It wasn't all consumed up on the altar. Some was given to Levitical priests to provide for them. Some was given back to the worshiper to provide for them and their families. And then some was given to the poor to provide for them. So that the more that people thanked God, the the more others were taken care of and provided for. They brought this offering either out of a response to who God is or or what he had done or, or even in anticipation for what he was going to do. I mean, they just looked for ways to express their gratitude to what God had done. Their lives were were lived as a thank you note to God. You see, that's what Jesus was expecting from these other nine. You see, thank you is about knowing who to say thank you to. It's about wanting to be near God. It's about saying, this is who I belong to. I mean, this is who I depend on every day. This is the one who has made all the difference in my life. I'm trusting in a God who has provided for me, and I know that he's good. I know that he loves me. I know that he has spared no expense in extending his forgiveness and his grace and his mercy without measure through his son. So I'm looking for ways to thank him. I'm I'm going to find ways, and, and I want others to see that kind of gratitude in my life. Not because of me, but because of him. See, the person who knows how to say thank you to God is a person who is confident with who they are and content with, who, with what they have. And who allows their life just to say that I belong to Jesus Christ and, and I will trust him to provide for me regardless of what happens. Second, see a thank you as an opportunity, not as an obligation. Think of the opportunity that was missed by the other nine. And they were healed. Jesus didn't take that back. But the implication is they missed out on a relationship with the giver of eternal life. Their contribution basically consisted of yelling at Jesus from 50 yards away. But they missed out on the opportunity to embrace him with their lives. You find yourself sometimes just kind of yelling at Jesus from a distance. And not desiring to to come near him, spend time with him. See, the power of a thank you is not, doesn't lie in an obligation, but in an opportunity. Are you missing out on opportunities in your relationship with God because your life is just so spent and consumed by, by complaint? Feeling that, You missed out on something, that you deserve a better life. I mean, if you only had a bigger house and 
you know, a better job, a nicer car, more fulfilling marriage. I mean, your lips may say thanks to God once in a while, but your life is saying something completely different. Don't miss out on an opportunity to grow in your relationship to God. The opportunity to trust that God will supply every one of your needs. He will bring a contentment and, and joy into your life that you cannot find anywhere else because of who he is and, and what he's done for you. And third, look for ways to speak a thank you into the lives of others. Look for ways to speak a thank you into the lives of others. You know, over the years, I have found that the hardest cards for me to throw away that I receive from others are, are handwritten thank you notes. You ever find that to be true? I mean, notes of encouragement and appreciation. Those are the ones that get read and, and reread. I mean, Hallmark cards, they're all right, but, but I pour over the ones that have personal notes written in them. Those are the ones that get saved. Those are the ones that get put in a special place. To me, they're, they're better than any gift that I could receive because someone took the time to, to think about what they wanted to say to me, how they wanted to speak a thank you into my life. There's power in a thank you. When I came on staff a number of years ago here at Compass, I was the youth pastor for the first eight years. And as that ministry began to grow and, and develop and more students began coming into the group, it, it changed the dynamic of the relationships. And some of the intimacy of the group was, was gone and began to create some tension and frustration. And sometimes conflict would, would arise. And at one of our snow camp retreats, it, a lot of it just kind of came to a head. And so on one of the evenings, I just sat everybody down on the floor in a, in a big circle. There's about 40 students. I said, you know what? We're not leaving here until we figure out how we can appreciate each other, how we can be thankful for each other. So I started with the, the student that was on my right, and, and I said, okay, I want you to speak words of encouragement and thankfulness into her life. It was a little awkward at first took some time. But then everyone started opening up. And, and it took hours that evening. And, but we went around that circle one by one and made sure that no one was left out. No one wanted to leave. And we learned that night about the power of a thank you. About the importance of speaking a thank you into someone else's life. I mean, our student ministry changed. The students changed. I changed. And we made that circle a regular part of our retreat time. We began making that circle a regular part of our leadership development our, and of our small group experience. We started doing encouragement raids, showing up unannounced at students' home after school and bringing small gifts and snacks and dropping off thank you notes to them. And it powerfully taught us not to be like the other nine about what it meant to, to live out in our lives. It's a thank you note to God and to others. Take the time to speak a thank you into other people's lives because there's power in that thank you, power to grow in your relationship to God and your faith and your trust to, to come to know Jesus in a way that you never would have otherwise. 
His power to make a real difference in, in people's lives. I mean, the reason why we gather here at Compass on the weekends and why we give financially and why we connect in small groups and why we serve one another in ministries is to do what that one leper did, which is to recognize that everything that we have is a gift from God. And like that leper, we, we have to turn back and, and we run to Jesus. We cry out, thank you for forgiving me. Thank you for giving me what I don't deserve. Thank you for loving me and setting me free from my sin. Thank you for giving your life for me. And thank you for providing for me over and over and over again. This world that we live in is so much like the other nine. Let's go out and show the difference that Jesus Christ makes. Let's go reach. See, that actually begins right here. Begins by turning and, and going back. And being truly grateful to Jesus Christ for changing our lives. Because he makes all the difference in everything that we do. Be thankful for all that Jesus Christ has done in and through you. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray together. Our worship team is going to come and lead us in one final song. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've clearly told us what your heart is. That you are there that, that we might fully enjoy all that you are, all that you've done. Father, I pray that you will just protect us from not being like the other nine, but being like the one who came back and gave glory to God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.